0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony. It's the Capitola Book Cafe, and we are honored to have two authors who are slightly, much less clumsy than am I. With me, sitting right next to me, is Karen Joy Fowler. She's the author. Her latest book is What I Didn't See. You might have heard of her book called The Jane Austen Book Club, Sarah Canary. She's a fabulous author. Thank you for joining us, Karen.
1: Thank you for asking me, Rick.
0: And seated next to her is Elisa DeRocher, Her first book is called Personal Demons, it's a young adult book about what happens when hell and heaven come to earth and conflict over a pretty girl with an unusual power. Thank you for joining me, Lisa.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, let's get that microphone up there. Now, you know, I'd like to have each of you read just a a brief passage, and I'm going to let Lisa start. Well, Karen figures out what she's gonna. <laughs> <laughs> Usually,
1: you pick one out for me. Have okay. you not done that?
0: No, I was thinking something from uh, the uh, the ghost, the uh, uh, Lincoln Booth ghost. Yes. All
1: right, I'll see what I can find.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. I, I want to hear, hear hers. You <laughs> we'll hear hers after. <laughs> All right. So um, I, I guess I will just start at the beginning um, because this gives us a little bit of a flavor of the characters. Um, this is a young adult novel. You wouldn't know by the cover, but it is. Um, told from a dual POV. So um, the first POV is actually My Demon. Um, so we get inside his head, and then we'll shift into the girls' um, POV, and you'll kind of get why it's both, hopefully, as I read. So chapter one, um, this is again from Luke's perspective, my demon. If there's a hell on earth, it's high school. And if there's anyone distinctly qualified to make that statement, it would be me. I draw a deep breath, mostly out of habit because demons don't have to breathe, then look up at the threatening sky, hoping it's a good open, and pull open the heavy security door. The dingy halls are quiet since the first bell rang almost five minutes ago. It's just me, the metal detector, and a hunched wisp of a security guard in a rumpled blue uniform. He hauls himself out of the cracked plastic chair, looks me over, and scowls. You're late, I.D., he says in a three-packet A day rasp. I stare him down for a few seconds. Sure, I could blow him over with a whisper, and I can't suppress the smile when beads of sweat sprout on his pasty forehead. I'm glad to see I still have the touch, even though it's, uh, I'm getting really sick of this job. <laughs> Five millennia in the same gig will do that to a demon. For this trip, though, the fact that failure will result in, a, in dismemberment in the fiery pit is all the motivation I need. New, I say. Put your bag on the table. I shrug, showing of my hands. No bag. Uh, give me your belt. Stedzel set off the detector. I pull off my belt and toss it at the old man as I walk through the metal detector. He hands it back and hacks. Goes straight to the office. No problem, I say, already walking away. I slide my belt back on and push through the office door. It bangs sharply off the cracked wall, and the ancient receptionist looks up startled. Can I help you? The office is just as drab and poorly lit as the halls, except for the brightly colored notices that cover every inch of plaster, like psychedelic wallpaper. There's a name tag declaring the receptionist is Marion Seagrave, and I swear I can hear her joints creak as she pulls herself out of the chair. She's got more wrinkles than a Sharpay and the requisite blue, short, curly hair of all 100-year-old women. Her round body is clad in the uniform of the ancients. Turquoise polyester slacks and a matching floral blouse neatly tucked in. I meander up to the counter and lean forward. Luke Kane, first day, I say, flashing my winning smile, the one that always keeps mortals just a little off balance. She stares for a second before finding her voice. Oh, welcome to Hayden High, Luke. (coughs) Excuse me, let me pull up your schedule. She bangs on her computer keyboard, and the printer buzzes to life. It spits out my schedule, the same schedule I've had for the last 100 years since the advent of the modern education system. I do my best to feign interest, and she hands it to me and says, here it is and your locker number and combination. You'll need to collect an admin slip from each of your teachers and bring it back here at the end of the day. You've already missed home room, so you should go right to your first class. Let's see, yes, uh, Senior English with Mr. Snyder, room 616. That's in Building 6, just outside to the right. Well, do I say smiling? Won't hurt to stand administration's good side. You never know when they might be useful. The bell rings as I make my way out into the hall, into the now bustling hall, and the sense of the sea of teenage humanity hit me in waves. There's the tangy citrus of fear, the bitter garlic of hate, the anise of envy, and ginger, lust, lots of potential. I work in acquisitions, but it isn't usually my job to tag them, just to sow the seeds and start them down the fiery path. I get them going on the little ones, startersons, if you will, Not enough to tag their souls, but enough to send them in our direction eventually. I don't even need to use my power. Not that I'd feel guilty if I did. Guilt is not in the demonic repertoire of emotions. It just feels more honest when they come to sin of their own volition. Again, not that I care about being honest. It's just too easy the other way. In truth, the rules are clear. Unless their souls are tagged, we can't force mortals to do anything out of character or manipulate their actions in any way. For the most most part, all I can do with my power is cloud their thoughts, Blur the lines between right and wrong just a little. Anyone who says the devil made them do it is feeding you a line. I stroll the halls, taking in the sense of uh, of teenage sin so thick in the air I can taste them. All six of my senses buzz with anticipation because this trip is different. I'm here for one soul in particular, and as I make my way towards Building 6, a crackle of red-hot energy courses through me, a good sign. Um, uh, Is it okay if I skip forward a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm going to skip just a few pages here um, and move on to Franny's POV so we can get a little bit of a feel for her head. She is my heroine. Um, And so Luke walks into her English class and this is where it picks up with her POV. Okay, so I'm not generally this swooning type, but holy mother of God, I can't believe what just walked into my English class. Tall, dark, sort of dangerous. Mmm, nothing like a little eye candy in the morning to get the day off to a sweet start and possibly rot my brain. And bonus, apparently we're going to be essay partners because obsessive-compulsive Mr. Snyder is having me move down a seat to make room for him. God forbid we should ever be out of alphabetical order. Maya's works slowly over his black t-shirt and jeans, not to mention the body underneath, very nice, as he saunters over and sits to my left. He folds his tall frame into the attached j- uh, desk and chair with the grace of a sly black cat, and I swear the temperature in here just shot up 10 degrees. The dim classroom lights glint faintly off the three still bars, piercing the outside corner of his right eyebrow as he stares at me through silky black bangs with the blackest eyes I've ever seen. Mr. Snyder paces the front of the room for a moment, taking silent roll, then says, Pull out your composition books and The Grapes of Wrath. Since Mr. Steinbeck was unable to uh, find a convenient place for a chapter break in the 71 pages of chapter 26, you'll recall we arbitrarily imposed one at the end of page 529. Today we'll be reading the rest of the chapter in class and outlining Steinbeck's major points. Mystery boy looks away, finally, and I feel like I've been ransacked, but not in a bad way, if that makes sense. I feel like he kind of checked me out from the inside out and maybe sort of liked what he saw. Miss Kavanaugh, care to join us? Mr. Snyder's voice is like a bucket of cold water to my face, which I probably needed because things were getting a little steamy inside. Um, what? Nice write-up in the Boston Globe yesterday. I think they captured the essence of your program nicely. I especially liked the picture, he says with a smile. Will you start the reading off, please? Page 530. I look around and everyone has their books open, even Miss Strayboy. Mine's still in my book bag. So I, um, I'm not usually the blushing type either, but I feel my cheeks burn as I, f- as I pull it out, flip it open, and start reading. My mouth articulates Steinbeck's description of the preacher Casey's death at the hands of the pickaxe-wielding stranger as his friend Tom's look- Tom looks on, but my mind only registers, vaguely registers any of it because I'm keenly aware of Mr. Ruboy sitting only a foot away staring at me. Um, I stumble on the words when he leans closer and I catch a hint of cinnamon, mm. Mr. Snyder comes to my rescue. Thank you, Miss Cavanaugh. His eyes scan the room. Pick mystery boy, she thinks. He smiles at me and then his gaze shifts to mystery boy. Mr. Kane, will you continue please? Mystery boy is still looking at me, his wry smile just turning up the corners of his lips. Certainly, he says, and his voice sounds like warm honey, smooth and sticky sweet as he starts reading. But my eyes don't shift. Um, but his eyes don't shift from mine to the book right away. Tom looks down at the preacher. At <laughs> Tom looked down at the preacher. The light crossed the heavy man's legs, and the white, new pick handle. Tom leaped silently. He wrenched the club free. The first time he knew he had missed and struck a shoulder, but the second time his crushing blow found the head, and the man's and the heavy man sunk down. Three more blows followed. Um, He seems to be enjoying the gruesome passage, savoring it, really. Mr. Snyder closes his eyes and looks as though he's meditating. He lets Mystery Boy read through the end of the chapter, which is much longer than anyone else has read all year. I glance around the room, and everyone, even tough guy, smartass Marshall Johnson, seems hypnotized. Would you like me to continue to chapter 27, Mr. Snyder? Mystery Boy asks, and Mr. Snyder snaps abruptly out of his trance. Oh, no, thank you, Mr. Kane. That will be sufficient. Beautifully done. All right, class, the chapter outline on Mr. Steinbeck's major themes in the second half of the chapter, of chapter 26, is to be finished uh, before class tomorrow morning. You have the rest of the period to work. Mystery boy turns to me, <coughs> closing his book, and I get caught in his eyes for a second. So, Miss Cavanaugh, do you have a first name? Franny. You? Luke. It's good to meet you. That was a nice little trick. What? His eyes flash as a beautifully wicked grin spreads across his face. Reading without looking at the book. He shifts back in his seat and his grin falters slightly. You're mistaken. No, actually I'm not. You didn't even glance at the book until you were on the second sentence and you were behind turning the pages. Why would you memorize Steinbeck? I haven't. He's such a liar, but before I can call him on it, he changes the subject. So why a Globe article? No big deal. Just a thing where we send letters to kids in Pakistan. Kind of a pen pals thing, I guess. Mostly it's a way of helping us understand each other. You know, our cultures and stuff there's a cynical edge to his expression. Really? You want a name? I shuffle through my bag and come out with a folder. I have a few more. Let me think about it. I'm assuming we're essay partners, whatever that means. Guess so. Despite the freaky reading without looking thing, I'm not about to complain. He's definitely a step up or 20 from Aaron Daly, who's taken his bad sinuses across the aisle and is now sniffling all over Jenna Davis's composition book instead of mine. We're supposed to discuss the reading and come up with a chapter outline with all the major points to Mr. S- uh, Mr. Snyder's big into discussing things. I say rolling my eyes. That's all for show, though, because I'm seriously into discussing things with mystery boy. So what do you think of Tom's conundrum? I write "Freddy and Luke chapter 2-12 outline on the top of the empty page in my composition book. He raises his eyebrow, slides my pen out from between my fingers, crosses out L-U-K-E, and writes L-U-C above it. Is that good?
0: Very good. Thank you. Karen?
2: I have always wondered
1: why immortals choose to spend their time in high school over and over and over again. You've easy you've, easy solved the, you've solved the mystery yeah. for <laughs> me. That's, easy victims. That was helpful. I've been worrying about that for uh-huh. quite some time.
2: <laughs>
1: <coughs> so I'm going to read a little section from a short story called Booth's Ghost. Um, my My most recent book is a collection of short stories, and I am of course um, very sad that stories about assassinations appear to be um, kind of relevant today uh, terrible, terrible day. Um, the story is about primarily about Edwin Booth, the booth family, um, John Wilkes Booth being the, the assassin son of a very theatrical family. um, Both his father and his brother Edwin were great thespians. And so this is a little bit about the two of them. Edwin's earliest memory was of returning to the farm after dark on the back of a horse. As they passed through the forest toward home his night terror grew. There were branches that grabbed for him the screaming of owls. The horses came to a halt. His father dismounted, swung Edwin down and across the fence. Your foot is on your native heath boy, his father said. And Edwin never forgot the overwhelming sense of belonging, of safety, of home that washed through him. He was not his father's favorite child, nor his mother's either. The favorite was Henry until he died. And then it was John Wilkes. Four of the Booth children passed before adulthood, They were all older than Edwin or would have been had they lived. These deaths drove their father into an intermittent raving madness. In later years, Junius Booth was much admired for his King Lear. Surviving from the older set were Rosalie and Junius, Jr. Edwin was the eldest of the younger set, followed by Asia, John Wilkes, and Joseph. The youngest three in particular were very close. All but Edwin were well-educated. At the age of 13, Edwin had been taken permanently out of school to go on the road with his father. His job was to see that Junius showed up for performances and to keep him out of taverns. It was a job no one could do with complete success. The most difficult time was after the curtain. This seems to have been the rule, that Junius would not drink if Edwin was watching. Some nights, Edwin managed to lock his father in his room. On one of these occasions, Junius bribed the innkeeper and drank mint juleps with a straw through the keyhole. More often, Junius would insist on going out, Edwin trailing silently, close enough to watch his father, but far enough behind to escape invective. He was a child with enormous beauty and dark, anxious eyes. His father's goal on these evenings was to give him the slip. Then Edwin would be forced to search through a midnight landscape of deserted streets for the one tavern his father was in. He received little affection and no gratitude for this. When found, Junius would curse at Edwin, shout, threaten to see him shanghaied into the Navy if he didn't go away. One afternoon, his father woke up from a nap and refused to go to the theater. He was scheduled to play Richard III. You do it, he told Edwin. I'm sick of it. Lacking an alternative, the manager sent Edwin on stage in his father's hump, his father's outsized costume. No warning had been given the audience, whose applause fell away into a puzzled silence. Edwin began tentatively. He tried to imitate his father's inflections, his gestures. The actors nearest him provided every possible support, while those offstage crowded the wings, watching in friendly, nervous sympathy. The audience, too, found themselves filled with pity for the young boy, so obviously out of his depth, drowning in his own sleeves. He had them on the edge of their seats, wondering if he'd get through his next line, his next scene. The play ended with Edwin's first ovation. He had won it merely by surviving.
0: Karen Joy Fowler, thank you. Thank you. You know, one of the things that interests me about both of what we just heard is that we often hear um, that the supernatural, you think of the, when you think of the supernatural, you think of it as something as reflecting unreason and kind of madness and chaos. But the way both of you, in the rest of the story and in your book, Lisa that the supernatural works it's pretty ordered and you have to have it pretty ordered it's not just some random madness otherwise li- as a literary device it just doesn't work mm-hmm. so uh, Lisa talk about setting up the rules for your universe and, and how, how you why you first why did you uh, decide to bring Satan to high school? (laughs)
2: Um, As far as rules are concerned, I think the beauty of uh, fantasy and urban fantasy is that actually the rules can be almost anything. The problem is is that once you set the rules, then you need to live by those rules. So I think that's when you lose a reader and you frustrate a reader is if midstream, all of a sudden, the rules change. Something that, you know, you were uh, set up to believe that they couldn't do all of a sudden, you know, because of some bizarre magic that just happens to come into play, now they can. Um, So, you know... this, I thought, actually was a really simple premise to a book. I mean, basically there's a girl who has a power that both sides want for their own. And so you got from the first passage a little bit that the the demon, Lucifer, is sent basically to collect her soul, not necessarily to bring it with them, but to tag her. Um, and in order to do that, he has to get her to sin more than once. It's, it needs to be a pattern because, you know, kids, we... Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, and so then um, actually the, I didn't get to where the, as an angel then who was sent then to try to tag her for the other side and protect her from the demon. Um, I thought that was actually a pretty simple premise, and I actually was really surprised when I looked into what there was out there in YA and found there really wasn't anything that was that yet. Um as far as like I said the world building there are places where in this they actually go, Luke goes home, (laughs) so we get a picture of hell Um, and then he also ends up in limbo Um, so we get a picture of what that looks like Um, those were very fun for me, but I actually write urban fantasy predominantly because I'm not great at world building. It's a little bit of a trick um, to be able to really put together a believable world and then to actually live within that world and really, again, stick with it. So as far as the rules are concerned, I mean, you kind of heard him outline what his rules are a little bit at the very beginning. The angel has rules as well, um, and pretty much they do need to live within those rules. Um and, you know, there's places where there's other demons that are sent. We have other angels that show up. And um, and to try to keep it consistent and keep them kind of all within that realm and all living by the same rules is, again, sometimes a little bit tricky. Um, I uh, Some of my very favorite books, actually, sometimes I'll find places. I just went to Harry Potter. I saw... The, the new Harry Potter movie. And I realized there's a place in there that she actually is not all that consistent with her world building. And I don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing her in any way. I love J.K. Rowling. Um, but it is, it's a trick. It's a trick, I think, for any author to kind of live within your world and live within your rules So, yeah, um, yeah.
0: Karen, talk about <coughs> rebuilding uh, actual history with ghosts.
1: Um, I- in the case of that particular story, uh, I I wanted to use because what Edwin Booth was most famous for was his own um, interpretation of Hamlet, which um, which I, I cannot overstate how famous for it he was. He, it, it was a, a he had a kind of cult uh, following around it, and and was known prior to being known as John Wilkes Booth's brother. He was known as the American Hamlet. And I wanted to use the, the play and the elements of the play to talk about him and to talk about his life in some um, hopefully fruitfully parallel sort of way. And so that's where, in, the, in that particular story, that's where the ghosts come from. Hamlet has ghosts. So, um, so uh, a story that's using Hamlet as a model in some ways, it seemed to me, had to also have ghosts. As luck would have it... Um, Edwin, by uh, various reports, was visited by the ghost of his wife at some point. So I didn't even have to make up that ghost, but I threw the ghost of his father in just um, because it was Hamlet and for my own pleasure. Um, but it is, it's is—it's a story in which um, the ghost of his father visiting him is, as far as I am aware, the only fictional element. There are... Um, Uh, I I always want to be very cautious because I'm old enough and have read enough to uh, uh, understand with some um, vehemence that just because something is in a nonfiction book does not mean that it's true. My favorite phrase now when I'm talking to people is, well, you know, I read it on the Internet, so it must be true. (laughs) Uh, I feel the same way about a lot of nonfiction. So when I say that's the only fictional element i I should um also stress that just because I didn't make the things up does not mean that they somebody didn't make them up
0: Well, when you were creating your uh, uh ghosts, talk about you know just the the process of inserting the these ghosts into a straight history story i mean you how what were your rules for, for doing that in, in a consistent manner? Well,
1: the the pleasure of using history um, is that y- your job, you know, that, that you don't have to make so much up mm. and that your job becomes mostly a matter of structure and sequence and trying to take facts and arrange them in in um, such a way with the kind of pacing and the kind of emphasis that gives it the shape of a short story. and And I find that, that sort of thing enormously pleasurable. That sort of moving pieces around and and trying to to make a pretty shape out of them. Um, the ghosts, I think, um, are are not really. Terribly consequential in terms of the story. I guess that's not true, is it? They are terribly <laughs> consequential. Never mind. I, As is so often the case with regard to my own work, have no idea what I said or why. Uh, well, uh, in terms of, of uh, the use of Supernatural, I had an interesting experience, I thought, with um, my novel Sister Noon. Uh, Sister Noon is about a lot of people who Built themselves as, um, you know, clairvoyance and uh, ran what seemed to me quite obviously to be kind of a racket, um, pretending to have all sorts of powers, uh, sort of like the Fox Sister seance kind of powers and voodoo kinds of powers, and and because there was so much of that in the book, and because I did not, and and because it too was a history, and because it did not seem to me plausible that that in that place and time and those people, these supernatural powers existed. I did not want in the book to have any supernatural happenings at all. I thought the people were strange enough, the history was odd enough, it, the book would, would collapse under the weight of of supernatural events as well. And I didn't want to um, sort of honor the, what seemed to me that kind of... Um, shiftiness of of the enterprises that some of the characters were involved in. And there's a scene in which um, somebody tells a fortune, you know, sort of makes a prediction. And I really, really wanted a book in which somebody made a prediction about what's going to happen to you in the future in which that did not happen. And that proved incredibly difficult to write. (laughs) And I don't think that... That, that is the case in very many books. Usually, in a book, somebody tells you something is going to happen in your, in your future. It's going to happen, even if it's the most realist novel in the world. And to make the prediction, you know, sort of plausibly vague as they are, and yet write a, a future in which you could not argue that that had in fact come true. I worked a long time on that. And then when I turned the book in, my agent said, you know, it was just so disappointing. I kept waiting for the <laughs> prediction to come true. And then it seemed like it didn't. Was I wrong? Did it?
0: <laughs> Lisa, uh, talk about uh, creating the consequences uh, of the supernatural in, in our world. That's one of the things I think your book does very well is to, to spell out what happens when the, the invisible touch to To most of us, touches your characters and changes their lives. And I think that these kind of invisible powers that, that change the lives the, of the characters and personal demons, um, they're indicative of things that just happened to us for apparently no reason or behaviors mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. I, I like this idea of uh, kind of externalizing, you know, giving... Uh, the devil made me do it is, is a... <laughs> It it may be a line, but it's a line that gets used a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that's a a good chunk of this, and actually it carries through um, into the next two novels in the trilogy. um, is is A real theme is kind of um, forgiveness, and then free will is also another huge thing. And, you know, in the end, it really, the, the whole upshot of this is it really boils down to choices that we make. Now, what influences us to make those choices and in the case of this girl she's got a lot of external forces that are tugging at her um, not all of which are human (laughs) Um, and so she ends up having some choices to make um, based on you know those sorts of consequences and things that are happening in her life um, because of things that are in her history which are her personal demons as well as again this now kind of external tug from both of this these forces from heaven and hell Um, So then the question becomes is like, you know, what influences you to make those choices? What is right versus what is wrong? Um, And how do you weigh right versus wrong? Um, And, you know, the tagline to the book is actually, if you had to choose between heaven and hell, which would it be? Are you sure about that? Because everybody's automatic, obviously, answer to that is going to be heaven. Um, But, you know, sometimes that may not be the case. And it, it may really boil down to, again, Um, uh, kind of what the tug is and where it's coming from and, um, what, again, what your perception of good versus evil really is. So, um, you know, in this book, um, the external forces are obviously the demon who is trying to get her to sin, um, and then the angel who is trying to obviously keep her kind of on the straight and narrow, um... And they themselves also have a little bit of a history, so we get to see a little bit of the banter between the boys, um, which is also kind of fun and and get a sense of kind of where their history is. Um, But, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, she and also other characters in the book are influenced by these forces, good and evil, and end up having to make choices based on um, kind of the sequence of events and things that happen throughout the book. In um, the very end, you know, she has the big choice to make, um, which is, will can she forgive herself for something that's happened to her in the past? You know, the angel is obviously trying to get her to understand that, yes, this is, you know, the course that she can take – hell would prefer that she doesn't because, you know, that's kind of her big thing and that's really what's keeping them from being able to claim her soul is, is her not being able to forgive herself. And so, yeah, you know, so there's all of these kind of forces that are at play and in the end she, you know, they're influencing everything around her. And then she's got to make that decision based on, based on that. So yeah, I don't know if that that got to what you were asking, (laughs) but that's kind of the, how it all really plays out. So
0: Karen, you know, in, uh, what I didn't see is is, a, is another story that's tinged with the the supernatural. Uh, talk about uh, your your love of Agatha Christie and, and and what you why you decided to do to her what you did to her.
1: Um, I Agatha Christie is the very first writer that I ever met, um, so um, that is a wonderful memory from my past. Uh, I was How old were you? I was about 14, possibly 15. Um, I was going to high school in Palo Alto, California. Her husband came to give a lecture at Stanford about one of his archaeological digs. It was to be a slideshow. Uh, it was open to the public. A friend of mine and I went together, um, You know, pretending a great interest in the mysteries of archaeology, but secretly just wondering if it was possible that Agatha Christie would also be in attendance and um and she was and um I I think that it's quite possible on no conscious level but on some unconscious level that I made the decision to be a writer when I first laid eyes on Agatha Christie because she was sitting in the front row she was wearing an enormous mink coat um did not really envy the mink coat um but what I envied was below the mink coat she had on uh, her feet. Enormous, fluffy, pink bedroom slippers, and I thought, you know, a job where you can wear your bedroom slippers. <laughs> that That's for me. Um, I read a lot of her. I, you know, I had read a lot prior to meeting her. I read a lot after meeting her. I have her autograph on a napkin somewhere. Uh, and. Um, and I thought her books were, you know, just very twisty and devious and quite wonderful and, um, and also still remember with enormous shock the first one that I read where the murderer was a child, which just seemed so deeply evil. Who, who would think such a thing? Who would dream up such a thing? She's sitting um, next to you. <laughs> 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 and then when I wrote, um, when I began to write... Um, Actually, the the story uh, which is most closely associated with Agatha Christie in what I didn't see is called Private Grave Number Nine. I I read a number of her books again um, prior to writing that story because I I wanted to send a murder mystery writer on a dig, and um, and Agatha Christie had stuff that seemed relevant to that. And I, I fear now that my fondest memory of her is the bedroom slippers, that the (laughs) books just really did not hold up in my mind. They were just preposterous. I sort of couldn't imagine why I had liked them so much, which is, you know, a terrifying thing for a writer to feel about another writer. It's so unfair, I just should never have picked her books up again. That would have been the kind thing to do. but, you know, I think the more um, gritty and realistic mysteries have just spoiled me for that particular edge of the cozies. Mm -hmm. And I also feel now, you know, in that sad, older way that when I watch one of her shows on television or I read one of her books, I know who did it. (laughs) I know who did it instantly. Possibly, very possibly, because, in fact, I read the book Mm -hmm. years ago and don't remember reading the book, but you know, remember just enough to see the important clue when it appears and <laughs> believe that I have solved the mystery unaided.
0: Well, talk about writing Private Number Nine and, and how you created that the structure for that story. Because it's got a really interesting uh, sense of, of plotting and structure.
1: I was um, asked by Michael Chabon to submit a story to uh, the McSweeney Collection. And the McSweeney collection that he was doing, uh, I think it's called Thrilling Tales. What he wanted, you know, he's been an enormous advocate for kind of old-fashioned, genre-infused storytelling. You know, the the ripping good yarn um, kind of storytelling. And so he wanted a lot of writers to write... Stories that were, um, as I said, infused with genre elements in some sort of way, and and I said that I would write one. I was tremendously flattered to be asked, and what I wanted to do was to write a mummy's curse story. I wanted to to uh, use that as a kind of template. And as I said, you know, I had I had this idea that um, of a of a kind of Mystery murder mystery writer arriving at a dig where there's a small group of people in a in very close quarters getting on each other's nerves and um, her questions and her obsession with murder just sort of making the the atmosphere increasingly dangerous um, as is so often the case I'm forced to say with my supernatural material in the end I kind of cheat and It's possible to read the story as completely psychological, um, with no supernatural element at all, and it's also possible to read the story as a as a mummy mummy's curse story. And I think you know, readers who don't like me as well as I deserve to be liked (laughs) frequently complain that you know that I won't.
0: You won't. You just won't give us a good monster.
1: I just. I just. <laughs> you know. I just won't step up to the plate and make a decision. Yes, it's this kind of story. No, it's not that kind of story. I just am incapable of doing that.
0: Well, now this is a decision that Lisa, you made from the get-go. Uh, why? Why? I mean, why? Why do we have personal demons here instead of uh, uh, just surly teenagers? <laughs> Which we're all well acquainted with, and actually, um, to tell much them, more scary. Yeah, yeah much scary.
2: Yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I uh, well, I, honest truth is, is that my daughter is sitting over there, <laughs> and she was um, a big Twilight lover at the time um, into the paranormal, supernatural stuff, so I thought, well, that would be fun to... I would never written anything in my life, and I thought it'd be fun to write her a book. I wrote her a different book first, but then I wrote this one um, because it seemed like that was really what appealed to that age group, and I was writing for my kids. So honestly, that's the honest answer. Um, but it's really, like I said, I found... I. I I've written contemporary as well, um, and I really enjoy writing contemporary books with no supernatural aspect whatsoever to them, but I find that it's just fascinating writing paranormal or or urban fantasy because, like I said, as long as you live within your construct and your rules, anything is possible, and in the real world, it's not, so it's really kind of exciting that, you know, something can happen in the book that, you know, couldn't happen in well, as far as we know, (laughs) couldn't happen in real life. And so, um, like I said, I ended up coming up with a concept, just like I said, that I thought was the simplest concept in the world. A girl, you know, caught between basically good and evil and the decisions that she needs to make. Personified. um, Absolutely personified, incarnate. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely incarnate. And actually, this isn't answering your question, but um, I've had people say to me, well, you know, don't you think your angel and your demon are kind of, you know, cliche, aren't they just the stereotypical whatever? And I said, yeah, they absolutely are. I did that on purpose because, like, they didn't think I realized I had done that. <laughs> it's like, yes, I know I did that um, because I thought, you know, what a fun concept is that that they are incarnate now. I have a devil and I have an angel who are fighting for a girl. If in our world we had angels and demons walking among us trying to tag our souls for heaven and hell, if they stood in front of us with the name Lucifer and looked exactly how we thought a demon should look and acted exactly how we thought a demon should act, would we recognize them for what they were? Um, and We'd elect them. Probably. Yeah, right, public office. Um, but, uh, but in all honesty, like I said, you know, the reality is I think, you know, it's easy for us as readers to say, well, how come she doesn't see that he's a demon? Well, would you? If you met a guy in high school, would you say, oh, he must be a demon? You know? No, you wouldn't. So that was what I really had the most fun with in this book. He drives this vintage black Mustang. He's, you know, got eyes that glow red every once in a while. I mean, it's like just everything about him just screams demon, and yet, you know, nobody obviously says, oh, you're a demon, you know, and the same thing about the angel, you know, he's the platinum-haired, blue-eyed, gorgeous, built tanned beach god, you know, of an angel who kind of glows sometimes, and, you know, and so, like I said, I just had so much fun playing with that, um, and, and, you know, thinking, like, in my life, if I was a 17-year-old girl walking around in high school, would I ever in a million years think this guy that looks just like an angel was actually an angel? You know, no, I wouldn't, so... I really, 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 really had fun with that. Um, and it really runs through again all three books is that kind of thread where why don't people recognize these guys for what they are and and yet yeah, they don't. So it's it's very, it was fun. Yeah.
1: I've always wondered if I would recognize mm-hmm. my doppelganger. Who yeah. other people seem to do quite readily in fiction. Or you know, if I would just think,
0: Who dressed her this morning? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Well, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's interesting because, in a way, you're both doing the same thing. You want the the perception of the characters in the world is that everything is pretty much as we see it. But, Karen, you're, you're edging back and forth between whether it's supernatural or whether it's psychological, and you're firmly in the supernatural camp, but the sum total of the experience of the characters is, duh, I voted for him, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> now, uh, Lisa... One of the things I wanted to ask you is, is getting into the head of a demon, uh, of, of Lucifer. Talk about that experience did. What Did you start to did your behavior change? We can ask your daughter. So, so no line. she's right out there. She'll call you out. I'm sure she will. She's a teenager.
2: I don't think so. I don't think I turned demonic. Did I? Did I turn demonic? No, I don't think so.
1: No more Um, so than usual. No more, yeah, than any mom,
2: right? We're all demons. But um, no, but, you know, actually the fun thing is is that, you know, he has, again, he has a history. So he's been doing this job for a while. And so you get a little bit of a flavor of some of the things that he's done, and especially as some of these other demons show up and start kind of pulling this stuff. You start to see, well, okay, this is where he came from and what he did. Now, he actually goes through a huge transformation in the book. um, And I won't say any more than that or it completely gives the story away. But um, he doesn't, let's say, act quite as demonic towards the end of the book. So that, I think, was my influence on him. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want him to be bad. Um, So anyways, but no, he does. He goes through a big change. but, But, you know, it was really an interesting experience writing from inside the head of a demon because to try to put yourself into what is pure evil, basically, and then write from that perspective is, it was it was interesting. It's, it's surprising the things you'll find in a demon's head. Yeah,
0: mm. really. Well, you know, Karen, that Pelican Bar story—that mm. is so deeply evil. <laughs> I, that may be real, but I, I those people but who in there would write it. You no, know, those people would scare Satan away. Yes. So talk about that kind of creating evil that's, you know, just gritty, realistic, and, ap- and actually based on research, which is even sadder. I,
1: I, I, I guess I have a couple of reactions to that. Um, one of which is that you know I think that I probably at, at in the most fundamental sort of way I write because um, the world is disappointing to me. And I think that I, you know, that I was crippled in some ways by a lovely childhood with parents who cared deeply for me and took very good care of me. And, um, and you know, that, that at a certain point when I realized that not everybody had that experience and that that's not really the, the pattern um, that the world follows, people taking care of you beautifully and caring deeply about you, that, that there was something very um, shocking to me about that, um, and, and that I have never recovered. I have never recovered from, I, I always think, you know, that my parents have made my life as a writer difficult in many, many ways, because, um, you know, I read I read the work of other writers and their abusive childhoods, and I think, you know, well, e- easy for you to come up with stories. You,
0: know. you had a traumatically idyllic childhood. But I have to
1: make the whole thing up. Um, given that fact, in general, you know, in, in, I, I mean, there's, there's fun evil in books, you know. Um, and this, Agatha this a Christie kind of, you know, is, is sort of in the fun murder Camp, rather than the the P.D. James upsetting murder camp. Um, So I've got you know I've got no objection to fun evil and fun fun murder, but um, but in general you know the world is bad enough. I feel I don't want to make up genuine evil. Um, so if I'm going to write about evil, it's going to be evil that I actually find and I'm distressed about. And
0: well, the, the, the Pelican Bar, when I read that, I, I just thought, this is just so creepy, it couldn't possibly be, be real. It just seemed kind of over the top. And so I think that one of the things you do in that is you insulate the characters so well that it just seems this kind of self-contained universe and and I think that's an interesting observation about the, our our world that there are places where you can just be so insulated like high school or or, or like this private school that you create.
1: Yeah, I think um you know I, th- I think one of the um one of the things we're seeing in the uh it gets better projects is that you know, that, that recognition of the fact that y- you may, for part of your life, be in a very small world. But if that's where you are, then that's your world. And the idea that you may leave that world at some point, that there might be um, something else waiting for you, is not always obvious to you once you're, once you're inside it. Um, there's a, a line from, one, um, from Margaret Atwood's truly terrifying book, Cat's Eye, um, where she says um, something similar that uh, she says that um, that adults don't realize that to children other children are life-sized, and um, I don't know exactly how that bears, but I feel that it does.
0: Well, I, I think it speaks to something that uh, Lisa was talking about. Uh, world building is an essential skill for all of us, I think. We all have to do it just to kind of put together something so we can know how to operate.
1: Something coherent, yeah. That. I And I will say, um, you know, what, what I think I'm doing as a writer and what people um, see when they read my work can, of course, be very different, and I've got no... no complaints about that but my own sense of how i use the supernatural and why i'm drawn to the supernatural is um not at all because i'm a spiritual person who um believes in any of that stuff or um you know or has had more than a handful of experiences with um you know no more ghosts in my life than anybody has in their lives um but that i've feel very strongly that um, that there's always going to be a part of the world that just makes no sense to me. And uh, I, I my shorthand for this when I'm talking about it is frequently to say, you know, a, a world in which Arnold Schwarzenegger can be elected governor of California. That's just not a world that realist literature is really um, fit to take on. And, and so for me, you know, I throw in supernatural elements, and I throw in bits of, um, bits of the unexplained, not in a kind of coherent and rule-oriented way, like you were talking about earlier, but to, to suggest just the opposite, that part of the world is completely out of our control and makes no sense. And, um, and you know, there, within my stories, there are always smaller stories and smaller worlds where... Things look pretty realistic, and then you know, in the corners, these other things are going on. And and my feeling as a writer, my motivation, is that I really am trying to recreate the world as I live in it, and that that seems to me like the closest I can come to what the real world really feels like to me.
0: Well, I, I think both of you uh, deal in, to a certain extent then in, in ambiguity. They're just. So, uh, Lisa, talk about the the ambiguous nature. I mean, uh, of say Luke, he seems, you know, he he's a handsome guy, just happens to be deeply already. Evil. I don't like him. <laughs> yeah, no, he
2: he's pretty. Yeah, he's pretty hot, <laughs> in in every way. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so ambiguity. Uh, you know, uh, it, that's kind of ambiguous, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Um, he he actually doesn't start out ambiguous at all he um the interesting thing well and again it's all part of world building and how you how you frame your characters um Luke is a demon he unlike some other demons is not a fallen angel he was never anything but a demon. he was created in hell, and in my hell um they actually have their kind of sin of origin and he's a creature of pride, and so pride is his. Designated sin by which he was created, um, and so he's not ambiguous at all. He actually comes to Earth doing what he's done for five thousand years. He's there. He's there for a soul. He knows what he's going to do. He is cocky as anything because he's been doing it all this time. He's the best there is. Um, over the f- kind of the course of the story, though, he definitely becomes less confident in in himself and his mission and what he's there for, and and again without giving the whole story away really starts to question kind of everything that he is um and so we get to see kind of that evolution you see him going from very certain and very sure to being quite ambiguous in in what it is that he's supposed to be doing um Gabriel actually the angel almost goes the other direction (laughs) so where he starts out being kind of you know there but not really and doing his job but trying to get her to do it for him and whatever, then he kind of becomes more set in what his job is and tries to pull away and, and get really um, less ambiguous in what he's trying to do. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's, a, um, it's a, again, a kind of an evolution, and as far as ambigu- ambiguity, um, hers really comes in as far as what is good versus evil, you know, what is right versus wrong, and, and that is a really interesting um, kind of concept. If you ask different people, you get very different answers sometimes. I mean, what, you know, we consider to be um, a fairly minor infraction anymore, you know, 100 years ago was, you know, punishable by death, right? Um, so, you know, things have evolved over time as well. And so, you know, you look at, a, at the mind of a, of a high school, you know, girl, a teenager, you know, to try to be able to sort through what's right and what's wrong, again, she's got probably more ambiguity than any of them do <laughs> when it comes to really, you know, kind of her frame of mind. So, yeah.
0: <clears throat> she's the nebulous center of the universe.
2: She kind of is. <laughs> yeah.
0: Karen, talk <laughs> about it. That's something that you're, you're certainly a master of ambiguity. Right? And, and taking us the, and that's your stated goal is it not <laughs> Just to be ambiguous yeah.
1: I I like um, you know I like to leave the reader a lot of room in the story I like the reader to participate in in determining what the story is about and how to feel about the story and I, I try I, I and I guess be, that's because um, as a reader, that's the experience that I like the best. I like a very active sort of reading experience. Um, I, I tend to like less um, a, a reading experience where everything is clear and the writer is, is letting me know exactly how I ought to be feeling about things at every point. So um, so yes, I guess. Uh, my very, very first novel, Sarah Canary, is... is uh, about uh, the the point of view the point not the point of view, the um, titular character in it is a woman who appears out of nowhere in a forest in eighteen seventy three encounters several people along the course of the book. And offers, uh, you know, almost no information in terms of she does not speak. Nobody knows where she came from. Nobody knows who she is. Nobody knows anything about her. And she becomes the way the book is supposed to work is that she's sort of a Rorschach inkblot, and everybody who encounters her sees in her what they bring to her. And um, I, I, I guess you know, I, I, in some very deep way, I I do believe that what we see. Depends ultimately on what we want to see and what we're prepared to see and what we expect to see and um, and so um, you know my stories tend to tend to leave room for you to see what you um, what what will work for you or that's not quite exactly what I mean but I I feel strongly about the collaboration between the reader and the writer and I expect a lot of the reader because I like to, to do a lot when I read. and uh, So it's not for the faint-hearted.
0: <laughs> well, this is an interesting uh, topic, the, the, the reading experience, because it, it's one of the things I think the great pleasures of reading is that we, the readers, do get to participate. We don't. We're, we're a real active participant. And, you know, you guys may be the, the U.S. writers, may be the... Uh, Screenwriters, so to speak, but we're the directors and we're the cinematographers and, and so uh, Lisa, talk about you know what you say and what you leave out as you write because especially with this kind of story that you're that you want to have you know a kind of a, a more there's a moral to this your story to to a degree and, and but you you're speaking to a teen audience and, and teens you know Basically, you're, you're speaking to an audience that's inclined to reject anything you tell them.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Um, but I'm with Karen totally as, as far as um, the reader being able to make their own ter- interpretation of what is written on the page. And um, I um, have actually... Um, had a few tug of wars with my editor over how specific I need to be on certain points because I feel like it's really important to try to leave as much as you can open to the reader for their own interpretation. Now, you know, obviously there's angels and there's demons here. We talk about heaven and hell, but I was really um, adamant that it wasn't going to be preachy either way. And so there's not, um, <laughs> uh, well, at least to my eyes, there's not a whole lot in this book that is necessarily saying one is right and one is wrong, Um, there's not a whole lot about organized religion, there's not a whole lot about any of that, Um, so I really tried to be really open-ended with as much as I could on that aspect so that um, you know the readers could kind of make their own choices. Interestingly um, because it's only written in the two POVs, the the demon and the girl, um, I, there's a lot of readers who say, well, it's very obvious who she's going to end up with. It's the other POV character. Um, but there's a lot of them who actually come out being, you know, on the other side, and and the angel doesn't actually have a POV in the book. Um, so I feel like in that aspect, hopefully I've done that job and, and kind of left it open-ended for people to kind of make up their own minds and um, make their own decisions. I tried to be pretty sketchy um, in... Almost all of the description. Um, you know, places where, again, I've I've done some world building, like when, when Luke goes home, when he goes back to hell, I'm kind of specific on what he's seeing and, and what his surroundings are and the environment is. <laughs> Um, but in most places, like I said, I even try to leave physical description really up to the reader, just give them the briefest sketch so that they can get a, you know just a sense of kind of what I was seeing in my head, but really let them kind of run with it and make whatever that piece of the story is there is whether it's a character description or a setting or whatever. So I'm as specific as I need to be to kind of give them the flavor and then I t- you know do as much as I can to let the readers fill in the blanks on that. And so really, as far as the whole storyline, even, uh, you know I, I tried to, um, keep it open ended enough that people could you know kind of come to their own conclusions and work through what you know they really feel like is the right thing for her and, and all of that without spoon feeding quite as much and it's kind of like Aaron was saying because I get frustrated as a reader when I feel like it's just being shoveled at me every little detail exactly like I'm supposed to feel this right now and I'm supposed to feel that right now and you know sometimes it just doesn't work that way and I find it frustrating as a reader when authors do that so I try to not as much as I could avoid it
0: Karen, talk about Always. That's that's an interesting story.
1: Always. Um, I, again, um, I think. Ancillary
0: to Wits End, right?
1: Yes. Um, I, I wrote a novel, my, my, um, my most recent novel, my most recent published novel. It's called Wits End. It takes place here in Santa Cruz. I wrote it as I was in the process of moving to Santa Cruz and um, sort of used it as a used the opportunity to kind of learn about the place that I was now coming to live. Um, and one of the bits of research that I came across was a lot of stuff about Holy City, which is, you know, in the Santa Cruz Mountains between here and San Jose, and was a, was a p- place um, from about the 1920s to the 1960s where a, a very active cult uh, was housed, sort of half cult, half arcade, as I understand it. Um, a- and, you know, as is so often the case, uh, the research was just so much wilder than anything I could actually put in the book. Uh, the, the man who ran the cult, William Riker, um, also a famous Star Trek name, for those of you paying attention, not the same William Riker, um, ran for governor, four times, and uh, was um, charged during World War II by the FBI of of sedition because he had written an admiring letter to Hitler. And um, the very famous San Francisco attorney, Melvin Belli, defended him in court, uh, basically saying, you know, look, obviously the man is completely insane. You can't charge (laughs) a a crazy person with sedition. And uh, And Melvin Belli won the case, and then William Riker sued him for defamation of character (laughs) for having said in court that he was insane. Anyway, I digress. Um, I also came across a a very, very brief description that that I was just utterly charmed by of a cult that took place up in Oroville sometime in that same period um, in which uh, a man promised his followers immortality if they joined the cult, he said that he was an immortal and that they would be immortals as well if they you know signed over their life savings to him, which um, that always works well, a bargain really at any price if you 're getting immortality out of it and he apparently gathered a group of people together and cashed their checks and then promptly died of a heart attack so <laughs> that that was um, and, and I only know about the story because William Riker offered then to take the immortals into Holy City instead, where there would be no immortality. And that they would have to shave, he said. They would have to clean themselves up. But if they were willing to do that, he would take them in. So I conflated those two cults, a little bit of Holy City and a little bit of the, this group of immortals um, in Oroville, and I made them into a single cult in always and always is uh is about uh a group of immortals living in a place like holy city um, and and it's it's uh narrated by a young woman who comes to the cult when she, when she's very young and then um, more and more and more people in the cult die, but she continues to to tell the story and to go on in it, I've tried to vague it out so that you can't really tell how old she might be by the time the story finishes. But um, to leave open the possibility that at least one person did, in fact, gain immortality, mm-hmm. and that that immortality um, is is problematic in many ways. Why which I, would
0: she want that condition on this? Pathetic, On this primitive pathetic planet. Primitive
1: planet. <laughs> well, she made the decision when she was seventeen. <laughs>
0: okay. I'm
1: thinking it looked pretty good then. I think I probably would have gone for immortality at seventeen. I wouldn't go for it now, but I wouldn't mind <clears throat> a bit longer than I think I'm going to get. It's slowing the process down. Yeah, <laughs> maybe another fifty years mm-hmm. past what. I'm going to get.
0: Well, hey, it's May 21st of this year, so. That we're all. The the whole gig's up, yeah. yeah.
1: That's true, (laughs) that's true. Uh, You know, I read that and I thought, my poor niece, her birthday is May 23rd. What are the odds?
0: (laughs) Well, there's always somebody who's predicting the end of the world, and and there's always a lot of people who are willing to believe in them and willing to follow up. Now, do we have any other uh, questions from the audience from this evening? Ladies, I'm taken by looking through both of your books, Um, By your approaches are different and your approaches are similar. Have you discussed your craft of writing with each other before tonight? Have you known each other around town?
1: No. No, No, we met about five minutes
0: before this event began.
2: (laughs) Which is wonderful. I'm so excited. No, no, we've never met.
0: Well, that's the that's the uh, the point because I think that this kind of uh, y- you are approaching the same goal from kind of different uh, different uh, directions, and there's a lot of crossover between the the, the kind of work you guys do. Now, um, Karen, are you ever going to give us a full-on genre novel? I mean, science fiction set in the future, uh, you know ghosts, I monsters, anything. I've
1: got. I would love to say yes. I would love to write a novel like that. I would love to write a novel where everybody looking at it said, you know, I know exactly what kind of novel this is.
0: Jane Austen versus Planet of the Apes.
1: Yeah. Um, but I, th- I think those novels are really hard. They're, um, I think that they're hard to do well. They're easy to do badly, and they're hard to do well. And I just I, I fear um that my talents will fail uh, in producing one but never say never i i'm not it's not the next novel i'm writing and it's not the novel after that and it's not the novel after that <laughs> <laughs> and at the rate i write novels unless immortality beckons <laughs> i may never get to uh, but never say never
0: Karen see this right here yes you're already immortal
1: <laughs> thank you <laughs> It's lovely.
0: Lisa, uh, now you're too, you I see you have original sin here. This is the follow-on to this novel. Do we get more point of do we do we get to do we get to see what things from the angel's perspective yet?
2: Um um, which well okay the angel no an angel yes okay
1: <laughs> um, I think that would be a lot harder than a demon don't you yeah, think it
2: will be it, it will it, it's it's a little bit tricky it is no um, original sin is the sequel. Um, mm-hmm. And I just got the advanced readers, which is what this is. Um, And it um, is told from three POVs, and there is an angel POV. Um, Book three, I just finished the the first draft of. And there's also three POVs, and one of them is an angel. But it's a different angel. (laughs) Um, That's the one everybody's waiting for. So we actually get to hear from Gabe in the third book. Yeah.
0: Now, um, is is Luke the uh, constant demonic? uh, Well, he's... I mean,
2: yeah. Friend, we have Franny and Luke in all three books, mm-hmm. and then um, there's a, a second, like another. I'm not gonna say who because it ruins the whole thing. But a, another angel in this one, uh, we get that POV, and then, like I said, then we then Gabe, we get the three POVs in the third book, because everybody told me that they had to hear from Gabe, so we're hearing from Gabe, and actually, people say, well, why didn't we to start with? And um, the answer to that is because he can read her mind. So if we had his POV to start with, there'd be a whole bunch of spoilers really early in the book, and it wouldn't be much of a mystery. Mm. Um, also, he, in my head, I have to say, I know it sounds really ridiculous, maybe you can relate to this. Um, my characters have conversations. I am the poorly paid la- uh, help with the laptop. I just take dictation. I write them down. And he, everything that came from him came through Franny or Luke in the first book. Um, he didn't w- want a POV. Um, so he didn't have one in the first book. But no, he's definitely got one in the third book he's demanding to be heard
0: now so yeah yeah it was fun though Karen uh, you talked about three books in your future how, how far in the future are they and, and just talk about the process of uh, crafting novels uh, more than one novel at once that seems uh, like a you know juggling chainsaws
1: oh I you know I, I do them one at a time oh. I just have ideas for what the next ones will be
0: that, um, do you just let that? Do you write it that part, little kernel down, or you just let it stew?
1: I just let it stew, and you know, I figure by the when I f- by the time I finish the book, the endless endless book that I'm currently on. Um, this is your. I, it account. also it also um, you know keeps me going because usually I have this idea for a novel. It seems like a really good idea. It's going to be a really good novel. And then while I'm writing it, it turns out not to be a really good <laughs> novel. After all, I'm not actually such a good idea. And so the only thing that kind of keeps my spirits up is that I've got this really great idea for the next novel when I finish this one, um, which is sadly disappointing in all sorts of ways. Um, and you know, as long as I just never learn that the next idea will also be sadly disappointing when I'm doing it, I can keep going quite happily. Thinking well, shame about the one I'm working on now, but the next one—that's the one that will make my name.
0: Well, here, let me just see. It's, it's like a halo. You guys, <laughs> we'll get you. We'll get you a little uh, book rack. We can put it above your head.
1: I have found it sadly necessary to tell people that the cover of the book is a gorilla in a submarine. Apparently. Um, this is surprising to some people. You no know I, what
0: I really wish that they'd use for the cover of this is the maps that your uh, that come from the submarine story. That, that would have been great, would not it? Yeah. Do, do you still Why have didn't those maps? I
1: ask you. I do. Yes. Oh, I do.
0: Well, you can ask me next time.
1: I will. <laughs> the maps he's referring to my father and, uh, in a very novelistic twist, also my stepfather. Um, Worked together during World War II in um, La Jolla, California, and their job was to map the Pacific so that, uh, that the maps were printed on bits of nylon and the pilots carried them. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you? Oh my God, you're the From first what? person I have ever I met. Got this in the Navy. I have a, the pilots printed on, it's on Yeah, it's on RAN. Oh, my dad did those maps. They were supposed to, if the if the boat went down or the plane went down, you were supposed to be able to pull out the map and find the currents and the winds and get to friendly territory. But um, what what strikes me about the maps, I don't know about the one you have in particular, but um, when you pull them out and look at them and you try to imagine that your plane has just gone down, you know, they're, they're just water. There's just <laughs> nothing but water, and you think... Really? <laughs> what, good, what good is this map going to do me? Um, so I would be, I'm thrilled that, that your dad had one. I'd be even more thrilled if he used it to get to a friendly island in some <laughs> moment of crisis. The there. I, <laughs> I actually have more than one, and my grandmother made the second one into a shirt, which I believe I also still have. Hmm. So. Well, I'm... I'm stunned. My, my evening is m- completely, my year is completely made. I'll send a scan of it Rick. <laughs> can forward it to
0: you. Lisa. D- Someone
1: what par- has to make Lisa's
0: evening now uh, with something. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa, tell us what parts, when you read your book now, what parts of it um, strike you as being like oh, my God, I was really, really writing about my life, our daughter's life, and that you didn't realize when it happened.
2: I've had people ask, like, are any of the characters based on you mm-hmm. um, those sorts of questions? Um, and, and honestly, you know, the only part I can really honestly say that is true about is... Um, you know, Franny, my main character, my heroine, she is being raised in a very Catholic family. I'm not Catholic. I wasn't raised Catholic. And I wasn't raised in a very religious family. Um, But she goes through basically a crisis of faith where she questions the existence of God and everything else because of things that have happened to her. And that piece of it, it was definitely based on me and especially me as a teenager. Um, It's just like, you know, the concept of what is our place really in the universe? Um, is there a higher power? If so, what is it? Um, and how does it relate to me? And how is, you know, because as a teenager, it's all about me, right? I mean, that's, that's your frame of mind as a teenager. Um, we're very narcissistic when we're that age. And so you want to know, like, how is that does age? Well, yeah, and some people much beyond that age, but, you know, just because of brain development and whatnot, right, we, you know, we haven't fully developed our neocortexes, and so, um, you know, it is, we're really more at that primal stage where everything is about me, and so, you know, she actually, in a lot of ways, is very selfish, she's very flawed, people like her because she's really strong in a lot of ways as well. But she's really flawed, and um, and you know, like I said, just she doesn't believe in love. She doesn't believe in God. She doesn't, you know, she has all of these things going on in her life. I think um, that so many of us at that stage in our lives really question, and so um, that piece I would say is probably the only piece that (coughs) I can really look back and say, you know, I could connect to myself and issues that I went through and kind of my own crises um, at that same age. So yeah.
0: Well, you know, Lisa, you asked if there's a higher power. If there's a higher power, it's an author. And they're both sitting with us tonight. And we've had Lisa Roche, whose new novel, his first novel is Personal Demons. It's the first in a trilogy. And Karen Joy Fowler, whose latest book is What I Didn't See, but you can all see the book and see what she didn't see and read about the fabulous uh, fabric maps and a lot more. Thank you for joining me, ladies.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.